Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. We're recording at a, once again, second weekend, well, yeah, we didn't do a journal last week, mm-hmm. but for the second recording session row, we're recording at a an off, yeah. we're off our schedule. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a little under the a little under. Sorry, I'm getting over bronchitis and it is hanging on. And, yeah, you uh, were very so, under the weather. Yeah, so the last few days, uh, this somehow winds up being uh, my nap time. So <laughs> I can't guarantee that my energy level is going to be high, but I'll do my best. Um, okay, and I'm just realizing I miscounted. I have seven movies to talk about. Seven. Today. So I will start with two, then we'll go. Okay. Yeah, we'll go back and forth. So I'm going to get two. I'm going to. I forgot that I had written. I had watched one last night that I had. I have yet to log on my letterbox, which is what I use. That makes a difference. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, so uh, but I'm going to start with the movie that I was. It was my most most one of my most anticipated movies of the year 2019, and that's John Wick Chapter Three, right? Parabellum, which is Latin for prepare for war. Okay. As we learn when Ian McShane says it. uh, In the movie. and I'm just, uh, you know, the, these movies, I, I, I feel like I can't, there's nothing I can say, but except these movies are just so much fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, assuming that you have a stomach for violence right. being treated as cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, these are incredibly violent movies, and they're not movies that are about, there's no consideration of the weight of what John Wick has done in his soul. You know what right. I mean? Like, it, it, that's, it, it's just cool that he kills people and figures out unique and interesting ways to kill people uh, in in situations that call for it. Now, I've said this before, um, uh, that you are somebody that I think of as being sensitive yes. to violence and, and gore and that you usually are yeah. not in favor of violence looking as by your own words, cool. Yeah. So what is it about this series? In that, this case, uh, it's just, it's so stylized that it goes, it goes sure. beyond sure. To, is what I'm saying. It goes beyond where I don't even have to consider. This is so not the real yeah. world. And with, with each it's chapter, like kill bill, that's, that's how yeah, I do yeah. the first kill bill. Yes. So with each chapter, literally they're called chapters in the movie. We get deeper and deeper into how insane this world is in this world of professional assassins and the um, there's both the organized crime uh, syndicates that hired them out and there's this sort of assassins guild as it were which mm-hmm. uh, we learn in this movie is called the high table um, uh, like we learn more and more about how it works and the more you learn about how it works the less this feels like our reality right but yeah there's stuff like there's a part where 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 John it feels weird to call him John. He's called John in the movie, but I just always want to call him John Wick. This is right. part where John Wick is going against these guys who are in like full body, like bulletproof armor mm-hmm. and helmets. And he's like getting frustrated that he can't kill these guys, <laughs> but he figures out if he comes up to one and grabs their helmet, there's a space between their helmet and where their body armor starts. So he's just pumping bullets into these guys throats <laughs> at point blank range. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's the kind of stuff that happens throughout the movie. Um, I'm glad that I uh, I, I am spoiled uh, as a movie viewer in general that I get to see press screenings or get screeners right. and that sort of stuff. John, I've seen all, all three John Wick movies in a movie theater with the public, and it's 
so much fun that way. You know, I, I have no problem with people being vocal in the movies if they're just being vocal in reacting to the movie. And John Wick, John Wick three definitely had some big, reactions there's sure. a there's a there's an eyeball thing um and there's another thing that i won't spoil is the eyeball thing slow or fast slow there you go very yeah. slow <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of the fun of it <sighs> um and but there's another thing one of the biggest reactions in the movie theater was a thing that is one of the goriest things in the movie and yet is not part of an action sequence okay um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's a part where Angelica Houston plays uh, uh, a woman we learn is connected to John's past. I don't want to get too much because that could be spoilers too, but she runs an institute that is half training assassins and half training ballerinas. And there's a part backstage when one of the ballerinas <coughs> is, is sort of finishing her rehearsal and unwrapping her foot and it's super super oh, gross boy. Yeah. Um, and, and and that got his big reaction I love that there's that kind of stuff the movies are just so stylized so much fun I do have the same I will we'll move on I've had the same thing with John Wick chapter 2 and John Wick chapter 3 where I have so much fun watching them but a part of me will always mourn more and more being the specific, uh, really right, the right word here, the emotional power and through line of the first John Wick movie. Because right. as insane as John Wick, the first one is, the movie, I think, very adroitly never loses track of the grief and the anger that's born of that grief that is channeled, that is motivating him the entire time. Yeah. Whereas what's happened now is because because John Wick got out as mm-hmm. you know and then he was back I don't know if you've heard uh, I he, mean that's what I'm thinking <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, and so he came back because of his wife dying and something else that right. happened and then the rest of the storyline which by the way these three John Wick movies take place over the course of about a month oh wow um, okay. so the rest of the storyline is basically he got out and the assassins guild and the organized crime were like, okay, he's out. Once he was back, suddenly there's all this stuff, unfinished business with that, that he suddenly has to address. Right. It, that's mostly the second one. Um, the, the second one, basically this, uh, Italian mob boss is like, Hey, you were out, but now you're back. And because you're back, you owe me uh, whatever. Right. So that's the second one. And the, the, the second one ends the way it does. I won't spoil it for people. And then the third one is the direct, literally it takes place. The third one picks up minutes after the second one. Oh wow. Okay. And is, is the direct results of, of what John does at the end of the second movie. And so, yeah, it, it has literally been like a month, uh, <laughs> for all three movies. And it doesn't look like they're stopping. They've already announced, Oh really? There's uh, going to be another one. They've already announced. And yeah, I, I feel like they made John Wick. Th- I mean, I definitely based on the way it ends, they definitely made John Wick three with the plan to make another one. It's okay. very much an open ended, uh, ending. So yeah, 2021 we'll be doing, uh, getting a fourth. Uh, what about the reaction you just had? Uh, the way you said that reminded uh-huh. me of a movie I saw recently that I forgot to put on my letterbox. Oh, so so I can, have six. So now you can talk. Then, I can. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But so, I'm sorry. You, uh, uh, so, yeah, I, uh, so yeah, I, I, I had fun. I look forward to buying the Blu-ray as soon as it's available and watching it all the time. Like I do with John. Wick. Sure. And to some extent, John Wick too. So the first one is clearly your favorite of the three, uh, because it's got that emotional resonance. Uh, yeah. But I do think, you know, in terms of, um, the, uh, Dan Lauston, Lauston has been the, DP for 
movies two and three. Mm-hmm. And I do think stylistically and imaginatively the second and the third have been, um, uh, a, a kind of, um, upping the game of the first one in, in the, in a similar way to what I understand the fast and the furious movies have done. Sure. You know, I haven't seen any since the first one. Um, but yeah, they'll, that not that John, I would, I like, I laugh at the idea of calling John Wick a grounded movie, <laughs> right. but there is yeah. something that there is an emotional core to it that the second and third don't have. Yeah. It doesn't really stop me from enjoying how just gonzo <laughs> and fun the second and third movies are, but every, but I will always have it. It seems after, after having seen John Wick two and John Wick three, my initial reaction has been the same. Like that was a blast. I can't wait to watch it again, but I miss when this right. meant something. Yeah. Uh, I would just, not, they haven't completely forgotten it. There are references to John's wife in the third one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, what did you watch? Okay. So, um, this was, uh, a film that I watched with my middle schoolers. Um, the film is called middle school. The worst years of my life. Uh, I did it's a not, documentary. Uh, you'd think so, but no, <laughs> it is uh, based on a on a young adult novel written uh, co written by James Patterson. Okay, which is strange to me. When you see this movie, you don't associate it with the type of stuff that he writes. I actually don't. Uh, I know James Patterson's name as like an airport novelist type of guy, but I don't actually know what type of stuff he writes. Like like thrillers and okay. stuff for for grownups. Okay. Uh, and so it's very strange. Um, <clears throat> I do. En- I did enjoy it. Uh, it's like clearly uh, not for me. Uh, it's not for you. The the my students picked the movie, uh-huh. uh, and so I was like, okay, sure, why not? It's got Andy Daly in it as the villain. It's oh, got Rob cool. Riggle. Um, so like, okay, uh, and for what it is, um, and I don't mean to say that in a negative way. So I'm, so often people say, oh, for what it is, not bad. Usually what they mean is like for a bad movie, it's not good. <laughs> or, nah. No, for a bad movie, it's not bad. It could be worse. Um, it could be worse. Uh, but no, what I mean is that like, there's nothing wrong with a movie not being for me. Not everything. Ha- not every movie has to be for everybody. And this movie, you know, my students clearly loved it. Uh, some had seen it, some had not, uh, and they laughed at all the parts uh, that they were supposed to laugh at. But then it's Andy Daly and Rubber. So there are moments that I laughed. And the kids did not. And I was like, huh. okay, all right. Well, and the, Can uh, you give me an example of a... There's, okay, here's one. First off, Andy Daly, reliably funny all the time. Yeah. Rob, uh, Rob Riggle is, a, is, a, is an actor that I think I, I forget about sometimes. But he okay. is very dependable mm-hmm. uh, as a comedic performer. And I'm pretty sure that he and Andy Daly ad-libbed a lot. Okay. Uh, just a hunch. But anyway, so he plays, uh, you know, the asshole boyfriend of uh, the main character's mother. Okay. Okay. Rob Riggle, very good at playing assholes. Uh, but but yeah. again, like... Snapping like, necks and cash and checks. Wasn't that him from Step Brothers? <laughs> uh, I never saw Step Brothers. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure that's his line. That sounds about right. Snapping necks and cash and checks. <laughs> yeah, and so here, the guy just... But that's but he always does it with like such confidence and a big smile. Like there's an there's a type of benevolence to to the way he yeah. plays these characters. Anyway, so he has uh, the main character and his sister. He ha- he's taking them out to David and Buster's because he's trying to be like you know the supportive, cool boyfriend. Um, and so, but he he's he's like, all right, hey, hurry up and finish your meals. He's like, game of three. Because Game of Thrones starts in 10 minutes, and if I miss the recap, I am screwed. <laughs> and I can't put my finger on why that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> except Because it's like, okay, yeah. so either he he missed the last episode, 
or more likely he just can't follow this show and the recap is what he needs. Yeah. Uh, So it's stuff like that where I'm like, and the, the students didn't laugh at that. Why would they? But I couldn't stop (laughs) laughing at it. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a perfectly fine film. If you know, listeners, if you have kids age, I'd say 10 to 14, I think they would enjoy it quite a bit. All right. Um, uh, on a recent episode, I said that I had three press screenings coming up that were all like, um, uh, biographical documentaries. Yeah. And I said, I'd be lucky if one of them were good. Um, I would say I got a little luckier than I thought I would, okay. but not fully. Yeah. I, I was pretty much right, but I'm not going to tell you to the end, uh, which one it'll be, it'll become clear. Uh, basically one was okay. One was not good. And one was very good. Okay. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's in that order. So I'm going to start with the first one, the okay, okay one. And that's the documentary. Mike Wallace is here. Okay. Um, or as Marty Seinfeld, yeah. Marty Seinfeld <laughs> would yeah. say, Mike Wallace is here. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, I think this documentary is at its best when it's not actually biographically about Mike Wallace, but about what he represents in the continuum of television journalism. Yes. And, and where, you know, it's very interesting to think that at the time that he first joined 60 minutes, the established 60 minutes, Walter Conkright and them were like, this guy's going to sully the name of our show. You know what I mean? Like we're a serious journalism show. This guy is sensationalistic. Gotcha. Crap. Right. Interesting. And now he's seen as like the hallmark of what like television investigative or hard hitting journalism can be. Yeah. Um, and the movie very, uh, very tellingly, starts with an interview that Mark, Mike Wallace did with Bill O'Reilly in which Mike Wallace is doing his hard hitting Mike Wallace thing and telling Bill O'Reilly what you're doing isn't journalism. What you're doing is essentially an op-ed. Right. And Bill O'Reilly goes and Bill O'Reilly basically says, no, I think this is journalism. And furthermore, I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you, Mike Wallace. Oh boy. You, like you're the inspiration <laughs> for what I do, which is crazy. And Mike Wallace walked into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so that that's the most fascinating thing is just seeing that how, is interesting because Mike Wallace is a guy who was not journalistically trained. He came mm-hmm. from being like a TV announcer and even acted a little bit mm-hmm. um, and then got into this. And I think and, and the movie makes the case for that for his entire life. He kind of had this chip on his shoulder that the quote unquote real journalists don't think of him as a real journalist. Yeah. Um, uh, and and yet that's that's what I the, I tend to think. I, I feel like. I feel like the modern day equivalent of of Mike Wallace is not Bill O'Reilly or Rachel Maddow. It's maybe Jake Tapper, who's like that's, more I'd of say a, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, but it's interesting to, to 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 just see from the point of view of Walter Conkright that Mike Wallace was a, yeah. an upstart that was going to sully the name of sixty minutes. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and then unfortunately, and I don't know if this is a some of this might be just personal preference for what movies do. And some might be the filmmaking itself. When the movie becomes more about Mike Wallace, the individual, I started to lose interest, even though it's like series, like he, um, especially in the, in the 1970s when he was, um, sued by general Westmoreland. I don't know if you know this story Mm. that, well, so because of what Mike Wallace did, 60 minutes got sued all the time and they always won. Sure. And they won this one too, or at least the case was dropped, but there was a very, serious lawsuit 
by general Westmoreland against 60 minutes of Mike Wallace in particular about libel. They were always libel. Right. Um, cause Mike Wallace suggested in an interview that he, uh, basically knew the Vietnam war, war was a failure and people were going to die and kept mm-hmm. fighting it anyway for no good reason. Basically is what he, uh, insinuated. And so at the, at the time of this, Mike Wallace went through a very serious bout of depression. Mm. Um, and eventually more than 20 years later, finally admitted there had been rumors apparently, but finally admitted on camera to Morley safer that he had attempted suicide. Huh? Um, which was something that, yeah, he'd taken an overdose of pills and then had, you see him on camera in the eighties and nineties. Like, no, it never got that far. I thought about it and never did anything. And then finally to Morley safer, like at the end of his career, actually admitting, hmm. yes, I've never told anyone this publicly before, but I did attempt to commit suicide. That stuff is Interesting, but I also feel like within the context of the movie, I'm like, I was more into what you were doing before. This, this is a little indulgent. It's tough with it, whether it be a documentary or a narrative, any kind of biopic, it's, it's re- it, you need to walk a fine line. Obviously, that's important. And the fact that he announced it publicly, all right, mm-hmm. well, now he's bringing the, yeah. his, his public persona into it. Um, but it, it's tough because there's, there is an element of like, and this is going to sound, this could sound mean or callous, but like, we don't know about you because you attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. We know about right. you because you were this for us, a paragon yeah. of journalism. Yeah. And you know, that's interesting. The other stuff is interesting as well, but it's just, it's, I think there's a way to balance it, but it's really hard to do. Uh, and yeah. often it's you and often they, the, the way the filmmakers approach it is in a divided way. Yeah, that's, so it, it almost forces you to choose which one you find more interesting. That's a good point. And also, it, 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 but divided isn't even the right word because it's, so much of the movie in terms of runtime is weighted toward the first thing I was talking about. Yeah. The personal stuff seems like it just seems horned in. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So that one was, I think mostly pretty good, but also sometimes, uh, maybe it overreached or misstepped or whatever. Uh, we'll get to the other two, uh, <laughs> uh later in the show. Okay. What did you watch? I watched Deadwood, the movie. Oh, see, I was saving this for our next BP TV journal. Yeah, I wasn't sure what to do with yeah. it. So I, it's so like, I, all, I also watched okay, it. Okay, all right, yeah. Um, I'll say this. It should have been on our TV journal because it should have been a miniseries or a season, a, a last season of the show. It's really good, it's really effective, but it definitely feels truncated and yeah. jammed together. Feel, it worked for me. Do you think that was just a scheduling thing that they couldn't get all the actors back together enough to do a miniseries because I feel like from HBO's point of view with the amount of money you're spending the set you're building yeah. there doesn't seem to be any why not do a miniseries I do it, think there's the possibility that David Milch could not commit given that he now he's right. not doing well he's yes. or he's not feeling well and he's got he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I could see him not really being able or feeling up to an entire season. Okay. So knowing that, and then knowing I have no doubt that there are people. In fact, I know that there are people that were deeply disappointed in it because I'm glad you know people. I, I wasn't deeply disappointed. I'm glad you know people. Cause I feel like everyone I talked to was like, no, it was great. And I feel like, am I crazy? Like I, I like, I think when I divorce myself from the uh, lens of the expectations that I went in with, yeah, I am like, that was 
really beautiful. Yeah. Both in the way it's written in the way it's acted and the way that it brings closure is really beautiful. But a part of me felt like, I guess I was assuming after all these years that David Milch still had something to say. And I'm not sure that he said anything new. Well, the one new thing, interestingly enough, the people that were like on Facebook and stuff, most vocally uh, disappointed the stuff they were disappointed in was the stuff that I thought was new, which was what they did, what he does, does with Al, you know, a lot of people were like, that's not, you know, I wanted the old Al. I wanted oh. the Al who's like robust and all that, not this. And I was like, and admittedly you can't help, but know what's going on behind the scenes. And when you see Al in this condition, you have to assume that he's some kind of, stand in uh but i thought that was i thought you know ian mcshane it gives him a lot to work with uh and no it's not as satisfying as it could have been but it's satisfying in a different way yeah uh and i think where wherever the wherever whatever novelty you can find in the movie is in that plot line um but uh yeah for me it was really just it is, it's very hard to remove the nostalgia from it because more than anything, I was like, it's nice to be back. It was, and I, it, it or is, rather it's nice to be with these characters, see these performances, hear these types of lines. I, I enjoy that. But at the same time, I could just rewatch the show, which is what I'm doing, which is interesting. My wife brought up the idea, uh, and I don't want to get into spoilers for dead with the movie, but we're rewatching season one right now. Okay. And so, we're in the middle of season one, Al, and now and this is the elegy for season two and three, Al. Yeah. And it feels weird. Like my wife was like, "Why do we care about this abusive monster? Yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why are we supposed to care?" Because even though she's seen it before too, but she was like, "But that was what my wife said." She was like, "I have to remind myself that we have two more seasons because yeah. right now I, I'm not I'm not given to care that much about uh, about Al." Well, it's um, one of the things that I always liked about the show is that. He is, I mean, for the first few episodes, like, oh, he is a full-on villain. Wait, who's this Tolliver guy? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, those are pretty quickly in Tolliver. Yeah. And um, then, of course, Hurst shows up and he puts well, them all to okay. shame. Yeah, here's what I'm, I'm going to say. I mostly feel positive, but some sometimes this podcast is just a place to air grievances. Sure. So I will say a couple positive things in terms of performance especially. I think even through all seasons, this might be my favorite Seth Bullock. Tim, Timothy Oliphant was so great yeah. in this. Um, and I will also say it's a very, a relatively minor character that I really felt we saw 10 years of change in, in, in small ways. And that's, um, Johnny Burns. It's great. He has, he has a, he has one, one big scene with the new, the new character, the new prostitute at the gym that was so touching. Um, and then also he gets to be classic. Johnny gets to be part of like some comic relief. Like I'm shot. You'll live. Um, uh, but I would say one of my major, I don't know if it's a complaint, but a reservation or maybe like a decision that David Milch made that I don't know was what I expected. Bringing, George Hurst back. He is having that character in town. Yeah. Just sort of necessarily sucks energy and attention from everyone else. You can't ignore George Hurst. He's not just another part of the tapestry, which is why I do think that had this been a season, like let's say a, a 12 episode season and he shows up in episode five, 
Okay. Like that gives us time to, it gives us time to reestablish yeah. the tapestry that you're talking about. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it, that was also funny to me. You have like George Hurst returns to Deadwood and Elmer returns to Deadwood and there's a funeral and there's yeah. a childbirth and there's a wedding yeah. and like, and there's an auction and all this stuff happens in like 72 hours <laughs> right. because they had to like, uh, yeah, condense yeah. the timeline. But, um, Another thing I'll say before, uh, uh, you know, obviously this is your entry here, but uh, Daniel Minahan was the director. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he was the right choice. He directed um, the episode. <coughs> if you ask me my favorite Deadwood episode is, there's a good chance on any given day I can give you any uh, a number of episodes. But my usual answer for favorite episode of Deadwood is from season two. It's the episode advances non miraculous, which is the one. Oh yeah. It's a very, in some ways it's a very sad episode because I guess spoilers for season two of Deadwood. It's the one in which over the course of the hour, Bullock's son dies. Yeah. At the end of the previous episode, he gets, um, run down by a runaway horse. Yeah. And he spends basically the entire advances non miraculous episode dying. Yeah. Uh, it's very sad, but also, for as violent and crude and sometimes pessimistic as Deadwood could be, I always felt that it was at its best when it showed the town coming together as a community and the way that the town as in general is so moved by what's happening to Bullock um, has always made in any way. Daniel Minahan directed that. Um, Speaking of side, Tolliver though, who obviously wasn't in the episode because um, Powers Booth uh, passed away. Daniel Minahan also directed the season one episode, suffer the children, which is the one that Kristen Bell is in, which is one I just rewatched and is, it's a good episode, but it's, it's maybe my least favorite episode to rewatch because it is, it gets so brutal at the end. It's rough stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then also, I mean, I'm just talking about Deadwood, but this is a show that unlike some dumber TV shows, like say sons of anarchy yeah. could showcase some true brutality, like with the season three fight between the, uh, the captain and Dan Doherty. Yeah. And then, devote screen time in later episodes to the fallout from how, you know, you think yeah. about Ricky Jay and how much, his character Eddie is changed after this after suffer the children. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. What a great show. <laughs> I know. I know. I just, and now I absolutely need to rewatch it, but yeah. yeah, the, that's the thing is the, the movie, it, it does provide some closure. I do think that the very last moment is extremely, I mean, it was hard for me to, you know, I cried a bit like it yeah. was, it was a really powerful moment and it also goes out, it's 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 sentimental and yet the last line is not sentimental. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great. It's everything that the it's show great. that yeah. moment is everything that the show yeah. could be. Um yeah, we should move on. Yeah. Um I was uh, I was also so, I don't know, interested to see which characters which like tertiary characters got real screen time. Yeah. In which like you've got like Merrick is barely he's there in a number of scenes yeah. and then he's an auctioneer but he doesn't yeah. really have Con Stapleton shows Con Stapleton up. but it's but fun then, to like, see the capa- like Con Stapleton being a man like a, a minister now yeah, like yeah, that's yeah I'm trying to imagine I want I want an episode just devoted to his change yeah uh, to be that yes um but then you've got like Harry Mannix a character that I'd kind of forgotten about because I hadn't watched the third season recently yeah. ends up being a big part and I was really I went into I was even before I watched that, I was like, I hope Samuel Fields is a character. Yeah. And he ends up being a huge part. Yeah. Not in terms of screen time necessarily, but in yeah. terms of his importance to the story. And I do, anyway. I do love, uh, I've always liked the character of Charlie Utter, but I feel like because he's a, a, a fairly decent guy, he often got sort of pushed to the sidelines when the action would really kick in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I loved, I loved the way he was written. I love, he had yeah. some really great, 
meaty scenes in this you, in the film. I really liked them. Do you ever? This isn't a complaint. I've heard some people complain about the lack of historical accuracy. I don't know, but have you ever dealt with the series played mm-hmm. fast and loose? with the actual history this movie oh yeah blew it I, uh, yeah none of this came even close no. to happening um i george hurst might have revisited for the statehood thing but deadwood had already burned down by this point <laughs> and been rebuilt and, and been then rebuilt. i think it burned down again about the time that this takes <laughs> yeah, place yeah. yeah um but anyway um one of my favorites. So yeah, the real Alice Warrington, um, had a very ignominious, uh, death. Yeah. Uh, but if you look up the real Charlie Utter, one of the funniest things is in the first season when he opens his freight business, he buys a frock coat and spends the entire episode sort of like self-conscious about looking too much like a dandy. Yeah. But the real Charlie Utter was a dandy. Very. He was famous yeah. for taking a bath every day, which is not something most people did back yeah. then. Um, and, and, and traveling with wild bill with like a number of sort of like, we think of his grooming products now. Yeah. Uh, and so it's funny to, uh, in the film, wild bill, he's played by John hurt, you know? So, oh. Uh, he's not in this and John Hurt could be kind of a grizzled guy at times, right. but, uh, yeah, like he definitely, I, I've, I haven't seen that film since high school, but I remember mostly liking it. Um, all right, moving on next, movie, the second biographical documentary. This was the one I thought was the weakest, unfortunately, because I liked the subject of it, but it's called Tony Morrison, the pieces I am. Okay. And it's just, it, it's everything that I usually complain about these type of movies being, I, excuse me it's it's nearly two hours long and i spent the almost the entire two hours being like and i guess in this in this sense it i guess it worked because i spent the entire two hours being like i should read more tony morrison i've only ever mm-hmm. read beloved it's amazing it's an amazing novel mm-hmm. and i was like yeah why didn't i ever read any more i should read more tony morrison and then but then it gets the, the movie's two hours long yeah and i'm like why am i still watching this movie yeah I you should, made your sale <laughs> yeah exactly i should i should be buying Toni Morrison novels right now. Um, yeah, I, I just, it, it just seems it's, it's the definition of hagiography. Um, uh, and, uh, it, it doesn't really get that deep into, uh, anything that I would have really cared about, I guess, beyond like, yeah, I should read her novels more or stuff that, you know, I mean like, um, that, uh, I, I I feel like it could have been more, it, you know, it talks about like as a, as a black woman from the South, mm-hmm. uh, or sorry, from the Midwest, rather she's from Ohio. Um, uh, she, it, it took the established literary word world a while to take her seriously. Right. With a couple of exceptions. Um, there's one of the main, talking heads uh is the author russell banks oh yeah who's uh in many ways as white as they come but has clearly been like a champion of tony morrison from Mm. the beginning um and that's great but there's also uh but but i also feel like it's it does it's just so superficial in that it's Mm -hmm. it's so expected it's so coming from the point of view of well we already know she's great so like how stupid of them and not like getting into the sort of sociological uh uh aspects of of the things that she struggled against i don't know uh, uh, yeah i guess it was interesting to learn how far into her career she because she was working as an editor and a professor and for a long time even after she was publishing books she was still working for random house and editing other authors mm-hmm. uh stuff and, and and still teaching 
well, she long into her in, uh, into her career. Um, I guess that was a little interesting, but at this point, I'm grasping at straws for things that are an interesting <laughs> yeah. take. It's so <clears throat> the expected take, and I just, I, I mean, it, yeah, like I said, it worked in the sense that it probably sold some Tony Morrison. I'm probably going to buy some Tony Morrison novels yeah. next time I stop by Skylight or Book Soup, but um, uh, it, it's doesn't mean it was worth two hours. Yeah. All right. Yeah. An A&E biography could have done it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So next, uh, so speaking of bi- uh, biographical documentaries, I have three as well. Okay. Um, because right around this time is when I started getting sick okay. and I was like, I'm not in the mood for anything, uh, challenging and I can't, <laughs> and I can't really leave the house. Okay. Uh, like I want something where, through my drug addled haze, I can, uh, still kind of pick up on it. Um, so the first that I watched is called scary stories and it is about Alvin Schwartz who wrote oh, Car- yeah. scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, the documentary is made, it was, I, I think it's, was just officially released this year. Um, and it's pretty good because of what you're talking about with the Mike Wallace thing, which is it does talk about Alvin Schwartz and it's interesting to the degree that it talks about him, it's interesting in so far as like the stuff he'd been a writer for a long time. Like, but like, Hey, here's a, he put out a book of tongue twisters. What? <laughs> like, it's just kind of these, these very like trifling type of books. And it, you know, and he liked them. He was interested. And the, the scary stories books came out of just, well, in the same way that he's interested in, tongue twisters he's also interested in old folk tales so he would he would research them and then condense them to, into something readable for kids and then would put it out there and uh i don't think he anticipated that it would be the big hit that mm-hmm. it was and i don't think he anticipated that there would be such a push to ban them from like school libraries and that's a big part of the book of, of the movie um and so we and they, they do their due diligence. They interview various people involved, including like the first librarian to be told by like the superintendent, like, Hey, you need to take this book off the shelf. Uh, the, the woman who is now a grandmother who was like pushing to have the book again, not banned, but just removed from school libraries. Cause she thought it was inappropriate for, for kids. And you, and you hear how I immediately started to defend her a little bit. Mm-hmm. What I really like about the film is that, uh, there comes a moment where, cause she still kind of stands by her actions and there comes a moment where, uh, they put her in the same room with Alvin Schwartz's son mm-hmm. and just let them debate, discuss. Uh, and we don't see the debate. We, you know, it's kind of, it turns into sort of a montage, but what I like is that it suggests that both of these people, are actually saying like one of them is saying like, Hey, this gets kids to read. Reading is always good. It's not good to, to, you never know what is going to affect a person. So, you know, better to just put it all out there and let, like let the kids decide. But then she said like, you know, we're dealing like, these are folk tales, folk tales, just because they're that doesn't mean that they're automatically family friendly. Like when we think of folk tales, mm-hmm. like, Oh, Paul Bunyan, like, yeah, well this is about a thing that skinned a guy alive, you know? And that like, that is a disturbing thing. And that maybe it's some, maybe it's more appropriate for teenagers, but not like six year olds and that sort of thing. And so like, mm-hmm. she's saying like that kind of thing. I, I, you know, I yeah. was reading that kind of thing and drawing yeah, pictures like that. It's um, when my parents were so strict about movies for me. 
but I think they felt like you were saying about Alvin Schwartz's son, like reading is good. And so yeah. they let me read pretty much anything yeah. that I wanted. And the illustrations uh, in that book were, yeah. first off, they're just beautiful in general, yeah. but also they're very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that like when, when the film comes out, I think it's later this year or next year, I don't remember, but like when the Guillermo del Toro produced film is, uh, is put out, uh, they're like, all right, we're, we're just going to try and lift as many of these yeah. illustrations as possible because you're not going to get creepier than this. Yeah. And so while I am more inclined to agree with Alvin Schwartz's son, I do appreciate that the film allow just doesn't condemn her. Like she's not, I think she has a, a limit, a, a limited perspective, but it's not as though like she's not condemning the author. She's not saying these books are evil. She's just saying, I don't think they fit with this age group. And so, so it's like, again, like I, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with her, but I appreciate that the film uses this as an opportunity to have lar- a larger discussion. Uh, and then, yeah, it does keep, it does come back to Alvin Schwartz, which is, which is fine. It's understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I like is, you know, it's called scary Sh- stories is not called Alvin Schwartz. And so it's very much focused on the book itself. Um, it's not an amazing film, but it, it, it got deeper into this than I thought it was going to. Um, so it's, it's a film that I would recommend. All right. Uh, I watched a movie, a great movie, uh, that just, uh, is, has opened in Los Angeles and New York, um, just last week. Uh, and I assume is going to be rolling out. Uh, it's a Chilean film called too late to die young, not to be confused with the uh, forecoming too old to die young, which is oh, the boy. Nicholas Vending Refn miniseries with Miles Teller. Okay. Um, this is too late to die young. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it takes place, I guess, I try I try to base my analysis of a movie based on the the movie itself what mm-hmm. happens within the beginning of the movie uh but I did look up cuz I don't think the movie ever comes out and says what year it takes place but I think Dominga Sotomayor Dominga Sotomayor has said 1990 okay um cuz I guess it is somewhat semi autobiographical and I think to Chilean people there's probably a lot of stuff that I didn't pick up on sure because 1990 would be right after the end of Augusto Pinochet's presidency which is a huge sea change mm-hmm. in in Chile and even though the movie is not specifically about that I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing um but anyway the musical cues are mostly right for 1990 there's uh the Bengals Eternal Flame which came out in 1989 I looked up there's some Shane O'Connor uh which her second album her hit album was in 1990 but there are two the song Fade Into You by Mazzy Starr is played twice, and that's a 1994 song. Hmm. A little bit of a cheat there, obviously. Um, but also such a great song that I uh, didn't mind too much. Anyway, that's another point. The movie's actually it's absolutely beautiful. It takes place... Uh, the main character is a 16-year-old girl who lives with her father outside of Santiago in a sort of rural... I guess you'd call it like a hippie artist commune. It's just sort of a collection of like... Mm-hmm. Uh, homes and trailers in the hilly rural outskirts or whatever. And uh, it takes place in the days leading up to New Year's Eve. And I guess this commune has a New Year's Eve party every year. So in addition to the people who live at the commune, some other people have come in. Um, And so this young girl, um, Sophia is her name, doesn't like living with her father, wants to go live with her mother who left to go pursue a career as a singer and lives in Santiago. But her mother we never meet her. Um, it seems clear her mother is not actually interested in being a mother. And this dream of going to live with her mother is probably not going to happen or not going to turn out well for her. Yeah. But this is 
one of the things that coming of age movies are about is that uh, things aren't going to turn out like you want. Coming, right. The best coming of age movies are always bittersweet, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, so she's got a, a, a male friend about her age at the commune that there's clearly a flirtation with. But then for the New Year's Eve party, in comes this young man, like a, an adult man mm-hmm. who you know, smoke cigarettes and drinks and drives a motorcycle. And suddenly she's infatuated with him. And so there's like a lot of coming of age movies. There's not much of a plot to the movie. It's just sort of takes place over the days leading up to new year's Eve. And you see her, uh, you know, reach for her aspirations, even though, even though her aspirations might be coming from, uh, a place that's not, that's impure or motivated by, um, uh, delusions um and you see her maybe fail maybe succeed uh, but it's a really beautiful movie it is shot in a very sort of most of it is a very sort of straightforward way but there are occasionally and more so as it goes on these i don't know if they're steady cam or if they're just handheld but they're very smooth very sort of gliding very subjective shots mm-hmm. um the opening the prologue of the movie is absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking, which is the uh, one of the families. Not Sophia isn't even in the prologue, but um, one of the families is, is they're at a beach or a park or something, some ways away, and they're headed back to the commune. And all the kids are like piling in the car and they're arguing over who gets to sit shotgun or whatever, you know. And so you're just getting this sort of straightforward shot of the, from the side of the car, and then from the front of the car as they're arguing and driving away. And then you realize that they, in all the hustle forgot the family dog. And Ooh. so there's this beautiful shot in slow motion of a dog, like a, 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 a tracking rolling shot of a dog in slow motion, chasing after the car as the car's like dust that it kicks up on the dirt road. It's so sad. It's very sad. And it's so beautiful. Um, and there's a lot of little touches like that, uh, in too late to die young. It's really, really great. It apparently it won whatever the, I can't keep track all the different, I know all the different festivals, the, the awards all have like a specific name. Yeah. I can never remember which one's which, <laughs> but it won last summer at the Locarno film festival in Locarno, Switzerland, which in the past, over the past few years, it seems like Locarno has really become for a certain type of world cinema lover has really become a bellwether, uh, uh, festival. Hmm. Um, and maybe I'm just saying that part of that may be because we live in Los Angeles and starting last year or two years ago, uh, and it's about, it's literally just about to happen again. Uh, the downtown independent here does, or, or, or it's that someone else does it at the downtown independent does the Locarno in Los Angeles. Or basically hmm. they take all the big films from the previous years or all the most popular films that they, that they can get the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the rights to display. What's the word I'm looking for? That's exhibit. Exhibit. Yes. The exhibition rights. Um, and they, show those over the course of a couple weeks at downtown independent. And so maybe my holding Locarno in high esteem comes specifically from my being an Angelino and this being mm-hmm. having become an event here. But in any case, uh, too late to die young is great. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, so I, uh, <laughs> made a very bad decision the other day. So I'm working on a project that I can't really go into, but, um, I was working on it in, uh, my wife's office, late at night. 
All right. Now, uh, you know the layout of my house in order I to, yes. yeah, not the Sorry. Listener. what the listener doesn't, I don't think I feel like I've gone into enough <laughs> detail. They can put it together, but we uh, should put a blueprint on the website. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> on the Patreon. Ex- exactly. Yeah, you got to pay for the right to break into my house. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so you, David, you know that in order to get to Jen's office, you need to actually exit the house and go yes. outside. You have a, detached garage yes. that is half garage half office yes uh yeah and previous not, not like jen isn't literally working at a desk next to the car right it's a built there's a wall and yeah. it's a separate a, entrance. a previous uh owner added a room mm-hmm. um and uh jen turned it into her office and it's super awesome uh so anyway so a couple nights ago, I was just working on this project and it was pretty mindless. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll turn on a movie. And what movie did I choose to turn on at like 1130 PM when it's dark, but oh. Halloween 2018, uh, which oh. is all about Michael Myers walking around in a suburban neighborhood at night and yeah. killing people at random, um, uh, directed by David Gordon Green, um, I, first off, I'll just say that like I'm I'm a huge fan of the first Halloween, and there is something as I as I probably just indicated like uh, there's something about Michael Myers that is really terrifying to me. I think it's the patience of the character that he uh, can just like stand and watch, mm-hmm. and he often stands in plain sight. Like you look out the window and he's just standing there, um, and so the idea of that uh, has always freaked me out. The idea of casually glancing out a window only to find that somebody is standing there not casually at all um uh but with uh, purpose and so uh so all so the film already was uh probably gonna work for me um i will say the film is at its best when it is dealing with like survivors of trauma because this is a this is a sequel to the first halloween mm-hmm. it's acting like nothing else has has uh, nothing else exists um and so jamie lee curtis you know she's now an older woman and she's had a daughter but she's been divorced twice like she was a survivalist she was just kind of crazy and what i like is that uh she's she lives like a, like a survivalist, but, and so, but they didn't make her Sarah Connor either. Uh, there are moments where she, she goes to dinner with her family and she just breaks down crying. Um, and so that is when the film is at its best and most powerful. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I think turns in some really great work. Um, and then some of the some of the kills, some of the violence uh, is really effective, really wonderfully shot. Uh, John Carpenter came back to do the music, and he's not just recycling his old score; he's just a, he's adapting it. Um, and so the film, in many ways, works pretty well. Um, I do think that the story itself is pretty dumb, um, okay. and the stuff that they do. Uh, and the, the way the characters act, it's, it's like what you were, the reason that I was reminded of this when you mentioned, uh, John wick three, um, and that they leave themselves open for a sequel is that the clearly the studio said, well, Hey, we want to be able to bring Michael Myers back. And even though Jamie Lee Curtis's character, uh, has been Laurie Strode, like she has been, planning this for 40 years and then when it comes time to like finish it Mm -hmm. it gets a little sloppy 
so that Michael Myers could conceivably live. And to me, it's like you've now, you know, I understand you want to make a sequel, but at the same time, you've now undercut your characters in order to do that. Um, And so I think that's definitely a a flaw. But um, also, I don't know. It's just a it's just a they do some interesting things with the Michael Myers character and that he is just completely, uh, he has no real motivation. He is just a shark. You know, he just keeps moving and destroying things and that's it. Um, and so when you have characters confront him with like his mask from 1978 Mm -hmm. and then he kills them later, he tracks them down and kills them later to get his mask back. And it's just like, the whole reason he got that mask is because it's what was available. Just like when he was a little kid, he wore this clown mask. Like any mask will be fine. Like the reason that he's getting this mask is for our benefit, not because of his character. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it's that kind of thing where like the, the, the solid character work that they're doing is regularly cut off at the knees by the franchise work that they're doing. And it's, to me, it's a perfect example of these things in conflict. Um, and it's a shame because I think there's some actually some good stuff in there. Okay. I watched, uh, and there'll be, there will soon be a review up on the website, uh, for the new criterion Blu-ray, but I watched Agnes Varda's, sorry, Anya Varda's 1977. One sings, the other doesn't. Uh, and I think you and I, I think we did an episode a couple of years ago, but we might've just talked about it and not done it. Okay. Uh, about that happens like very recent past period pieces. Yeah. Like movies that take place less than like 15 years before they're I set. Think, Did we actually do that? Or did we just talk about doing that? I, I don't think? remember now. <laughs> Listeners, you probably know better than we yeah. do. So, um, one thing's the other dozen is a movie that, like I said, came out in 1977 after a sort of longish prologue, slash maybe just a first act that takes place in 1962, mm-hmm. it jumps to 1972 and most of the movie takes place in 1972. And I do think that even though, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I might be projecting some of American social history onto France, um, and Iran where part of the movie takes place. But I think that, so the early seventies wave of feminism is very much what this movie is mm-hmm. about. And it's very interesting that it's coming out on Blu-ray, now, given how much abortion is back in the, mm-hmm. in the in the news, because this is very much a movie about abortion and pregnancy. Okay, um, uh, which I found the second part. I found uh, it was kind of a surprise. I thought the movie was so much of the early part of the movie is specifically about abortion, mm-hmm. uh, and then the second half of the movie is largely about about pregnancy and I guess the idea of making about choices. You know. Um, mm-hmm who you have a baby with whom you have a baby when you have it, uh, what you do with it, that sort of, that sort of thing. Um, but it's not, this sounds like it's a, the movies, uh, don't make the movie sound dry. Mm. Um, it's Agnes Varda, sorry, Agnes Varda. Um, and, uh, and so the movie's a ton of fun. It is in some cases a bit of a musical. The one, as you, you can tell from the title, one of the two, it's about two, uh, young women. One of them sings the other. Does but what not. about the other? She does not. Sing. Oh no. Um, but yeah, so there are, she, this sort of hippie activist, uh, young woman who sings, she travels the countryside sort of with a, a group that, do, that put on these shows and do kind of, uh, folk shows that are also kind of very politically 
uh, activist. They have a song about like Frederick Engels and <laughs> like um, stuff like that. But there's but because there's all these musical numbers, there's or all, because there's all these songs, there's essentially musical numbers. <laughs> and in some cases, you know, Agnes Varda, um, Anya Varda um, has a tendency to not really be overly concerned with um, what within the movie is actually quote unquote actually happening and what is sort of like fantasy. It's, it doesn't, it all blend. It's all a movie. You know what I mean? It doesn't like, and I feel like that's maybe for people who are less sophisticated film viewers. Maybe that sort of thing seems like a flaw. Sometimes you Mm. can't tell where, okay, well this is supposed to be reality and this is not, it's not, uh, I like that. I, I, I like yeah. that, but I, I do feel like when I was younger, certain musicals especially would like frustrate me. Cause I was like, I can't tell if this is supposed to be happening for real, whatever that means. It's, not, right. it's for real. It's all yeah. a movie. That's what I wish I could have told myself. But like, so there's a part where the girl, um, this is the second abortion of the movie. She goes, cause I guess at this point in 1972, abortion is not legal in France. Okay. And so people tend to go, I guess these women tend to go either to, um, you know, sort of, what you would call a back alley abortionist, uh, as the one who doesn't sing, uh, does, or they go out of the country either to Switzerland as mentioned, but, um, she goes to Amsterdam. Basically there's like this group that organizes basically like, it's almost like if it weren't for such a serious topic, it would right. basically be like a sightseeing trip to Amsterdam, except it's a bunch of young women who need to have, hmm. who furtively need to have abortions. And so, and then they put them all up in the same sort of like hostel. And so, this girl decided like everyone's real bummed about being there to get an abortion, but she, this girl decides like, Hey, we should actually like see Amsterdam. Yeah. And so they go on this like boat tour of Amsterdam and she writes and performs a song about all her fellow abortees. Uh, I might be translating the French incorrect, but that's what the English title translation is. Um, that's like really like, Oh, this is a goofy, like funny song about abortion, but also like, it's very much a song about, I guess ideas of, uh, it's, it's weird that this term sounds corny now, but like sisterhood, sure. You know, and then that's a lot of what the movie is about, um, is female friendship. Um, and, uh, and the, the way that women feel comforted by one another. Um, and in some ways the way this, the, the more sticky ways that they feel comforted by, men straight women feel comforted by men there's a no. you know there are male characters in the movie too that uh um that aren't like you know they're not all just they don't just represent manly like right. the characters in the movie uh anyway i st- i i still feel like i'm making it sound heavier than it is the movie's a lot of fun it's very light on its feet um and uh the criterion blu-ray looks uh fantastic so definitely check it out all right so back to business with my uh oh yeah you're with my yeah. biographical documentaries um, biodocs should we biodocs bio that's that works okay um but like, i picture like a cyborg duck it really like yeah a bio duck, right <laughs> like yeah. what was the who's the cy- the robo robo duck from darkwing duck right was gizmo duck gizmo duck yes yeah. absolutely oh man i don't tend to get you know, I don't like nostalgia. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a social ill, but, uh, Darkwing Duck was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I loved that show. Jen's assistant's father designed Darkwing Duck. 
Oh, wow. The character. Wow. Like he's been working for Disney for years. Um, um, spe- and so also, he did like an original sketch for me when he found out that I uh, enjoy the character. And so I have it framed somewhere. Oh, but that's uh, yeah, You know, our friend crazy. Ian, Ian Brill yeah. wrote Darkwing Duck Comics for Boom Studios. Yeah. And when he signed my copy of the first trade paperback, he did an amalgam of Darkwing Duck's uh, catchphrase and mine. So it says, let's get dangerous, shall we? Hey, that's great. It's so great. It's one of my favorite things that I have. Yeah. Speaking of nostalgia, this is out of nowhere, but I was scrolling through Twitter and someone posted a picture of something I had loved when I was a kid that I completely forgot existed. Do you remember Keebler pizzeria chips? Oh yeah. The pizza flavor, pizza chips. Mm-hmm. Those were so good. They were wonderful why are those not i wanted to go to the grocery store and get some right away they don't exist <laughs> which seems... i had literally completely forgotten about it and then i when i as soon as i saw the packaging on twitter yeah i could taste them again oh yeah it's uh and that's the thing there are plenty of pizza chips out there but they're not i think keebler moved away from uh chips from and chips. Stu- yeah. stuck with the uh, unless of course you know chocolate chips that sure. they're putting their cookies. Sure. Uh, okay, so I watched uh, a bio duck um, <laughs> that was infuriating. Okay, because it's weird. I, it's not unambitious, but I find it to be tremendously lazy. It is called Perfect Bid. Okay, and it is about. Uh, it's it's available on. I think I watched it on Hulu, but it's also on Netflix, and it's about this guy. Um, I think his name's Ted Slauson. I might be wrong about that last name. Anyway, he is a big fan of uh, The Price is Right. And he worked out like a system where essentially he just memorized. He was such a fan of it when he was a kid that he realized he would watch every day and he saw that they would reuse prizes uh, or, or just items. And so then he started memorizing the prices and then quizzing himself and that sort of thing. He would go to the, he would go and be in the audience and, and when you're in the audience, you can shout out what you think, yeah. you know, and, and maybe the people listen to you, maybe they don't. And so he was kind of responsible for a number of like big winners. Uh, and then he was actually on the show and he, and he did okay. okay. Um, like it, like he he won, but it wasn't anything. It wasn't a big win, but that wasn't his fault. It was just like, oh, the wheel didn't spin right, you know. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, weirdly my. It sounds lame. My favorite part of Prices Right is when they spin the wheel. It is a lot of fun. I it's I so always simple. enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. Um. Although there is an element there which is like. And I realize it's a game show. It's not a trivia show or something like that. But like leaving something like that up to chance yeah. uh, is like it's infuriating to watch. But anyway, um, and so the film, it interviews him. It interviews Bob Barker and it interviews one of the producers. And that's it. It's like, what? And then it, it does incorporate video from Kevin Pollack's chat show where he's talking about Drew Carey. Okay. Uh, where he's talking to Drew Carey, um, who then re- who replaced Bob Barker. You don't have to tell me. Okay, well, I don't know. Uh, it's for the listener, Dave. Yeah. I know that you know your Price is Right trivia all day long. Well, Drew's been on for like it's been a while, yeah, or something. Has it been that long? Maybe not. I thought it was like... 15 maybe but anyway still that's a while uh and so it's it's just a weird thing that like you know you want to judge the movie that's there not the movie that isn't Mm -hmm. 
And so, and it's not the film's fault that I find different things interesting than what he's, what the director is doing. But I did find myself thinking like there comes a moment where the producer says like from like he drove across the country for an interview to be a PA on the price is right. And that was enough to get him the job. Uh, and so, and he talked about how much he loved game shows and then Ted talked about how much he loved game shows. And then Bob Barker talks about how he felt like he never worked a day in his life. Like he, he was always happy to go into work. So it's, it's, they had, they, the framework is there. They've, or the, 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 the groundwork is there for them to actually take this story and then talk about something a little bit bigger which is game shows, which is like they've been around, they've been a part of television since the invention of television. And so why do people like them? Why, you know, I mean, our friend, uh, our friend or friend of the show, Jimmy Pardo, uh, Mm -hmm. has talked about how he would love, like one of his goals in life is to host family feud, you know? And to me, it's like, I enjoy watching family feud, but it, it seems like such an odd goal to like, I want to host this show. Graham Elwood has said the same things. Bill Dwyer has said the same thing. Like a lot of the comedians that we know would love to host game shows and some of them have. Yeah. And so, but they, but they never host the one they really wanted to host. Yeah. And so it's just like, okay, well, what is it about the game show that just gets its hooks into you to such an extent that this guy, uh, you know, he was in the audience like 30 times, uh, and, and that he didn't even really mind that people would win big on his suggestions. He was just happy to be a part of it and just happy to watch them win. Like there's just, there's so much, I feel like they just leave so much out. There's so much potential in the premise. Yeah. And I feel like, how you long know, is this? It's like mean? an hour 15, Yeah, you know? And it's, it's, wow. it's mildly interesting, but it just, it could have been so much more fascinating, but it, it is like the essence of inessential. I have a question. Yeah. Where do you hear about all these? I don't know. I scroll through uh, Netflix. <laughs> okay. I'm like, and it's just like, that looks too heavy. That looks too heavy. I'm going to fall asleep. I need to be okay if I fall asleep. So what is, and it's like, oh, this looks like super uh, light. Yeah. And it was, but as I, but this thing, like I might've been just because I'm sick and I'm not in the mood to watch something like substantial. Uh, I can't, I see, I can't turn my brain off and I'm still just finding all of the, all the things that frustrate me about the film. Uh, and so it was, it was a bummer. Cause I really think there's a, there's a good movie to be made out yeah. of that premise. Um, all right. I, I watched the movie that is out, uh, out this weekend. My review is already live on the website, battleship Uh, this movie that played Sundance got mostly good <coughs> notices. I was optimistic, but also a little cautious. Sure. It turns out my cautious caution was well-placed. The okay. movie is unfortunately, um, a bit lackluster and that's, uh, Nisha Ganatra's late night. Okay. Which, uh, I don't know if you were, uh, the, from our from our Sundance preview episode, mm-hmm. if you remember the premise of Late Night, or if you probably That's, learned about it since then, but Mindy Kaling wrote it, right? And Mindy Kaling wrote it and yeah. stars in it. She plays a young stand-up comic who gets hired on the writing staff for a long-running late night talk show hosted by Catherine Newberry, um, played by Emma Thompson, mm-hmm. um, and basically she gets hired because Emma Thompson sort of to refute claims that she is a. Uh, 
has some internalized misogyny or whatever, uh, um, that she needs a woman on her staff. She doesn't have any female mm-hmm. writers on her staff. So she, so Minnie Kaling is basically Dennis O'Hare plays her producer, plays Emma Thompson's producer, and he has given the directive hire a woman. And Minnie Kaling is basically the first woman who interviews for the role or for the <laughs> job and gets hired. Um, and then ends up, but you know, and ends up being a, an integral part of the staff. Of course, I'm not going to give too much away. Um, the movie's pretty, pretty predictable. Um, and that's part of the problem is that I do feel like Mindy Killing's specific experience of, you know, she was probably in a very similar position in 2005 on the office. You know, she, um, and she said as much, she was hired as part of an NBC diversity program, hmm. um, and felt that, she had something to prove because of that. But then also the movie gets into something that like in the world of Hollywood, so much is based on luck or who, you know, that she came to realize that most of the other people in that room were also there for reasons that weren't like pure merit, you know, (laughs) because they knew somebody or, or, or whatever, um, that they, that they got the, the, the role. And so the movie, the movie I think does a good job of getting into that sort of, when it comes to how television works behind the scenes and how the industry works, I think the movie as someone who has watched not really anymore, but has followed television a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was really spot on. It is clearly coming from someone who knows television. Uh, even the, the fact that like, uh, late night, the show, it's also the name of the show within the okay. movie. The show is called late night. Um, uh, is a show that keeps winning Emmys because it was really good 20 years ago. Sure. And it's not really good. It's actually sort of coasting on fumes now, but keeps winning Emmys because that's just, if you follow them, the, the Emmys do that. Yeah. <laughs> the Emmys decide like this is a prestigious show. And then people every year vote for it, whether they've seen it or not. I yeah. think because they're like, no, like, Oh, uh, modern family. That's the prestigious uh, sitcom. <laughs> I was going to bring a modern family, <laughs> yeah. but you know better than I do. So yeah. Um, uh, so that's exactly how this, so I think the, the movie's really interesting, but I just think in terms of, there's there's so little energy behind it. It's also, and that pains me to say because it's coming from someone who loves Mindy Kaling. Um, it's not very funny. Mm. It's not unfunny. Yeah. There's a couple parts. There's a whole thing where, if you can imagine, Emma Thompson offends Mindy Kaling's character in some way and then goes to, you know, to make an apology in person. And so rich Emma Thompson has to go to her Brooklyn walk apartment. Um, yeah. And so there's a whole scene of her like walking up cause she lives on the f- fifth floor or whatever. And it's a walk up. So there's the scene of Emma Thompson's character having to deal with all these stairs. Yeah. That is like, I guess I get the comic premise there, but you didn't really do anything with it. And it goes on for fucking ever. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, there's just so much stuff that seems, just seems to lay there on the page, which is especially surprising given the strength of this cast. Yeah. I'm going to tell you who's in this movie. You already know that Minnie Kaling and Emma Thompson are in this movie. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned Dennis O'Hare. You've also got John Lithgow, Hugh Dancy, <laughs> Reed Scott. Do you know him? He's from veep. Okay. Uh, Max Casella. Okay. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser from yeah. yours, John early. I don't know if you know him. He's on search party. He's been, you know, name sounds he, familiar. Yeah. He's a very funny guy. Uh, Ike Barinholtz and Amy Ryan are all in this movie. That's a good cast. Uh, oh, and I had forgotten about this, that, uh, Bill Maher and Seth Meyers both play themselves. Um, and Annalie Ashford. Who do I know her from? Do you know who Annalie Ashford is? No. Uh, well, anyway, she's really good too. 
Anyway, um, but yeah, and given the strength of that cast, it's surprising how unfunny or not again, not unfunny. It's not a cringeworthy. Annalie Ashford was on uh, Masters of Sex. Yeah, I think yeah, that must be what I know her from. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, it's it, yeah, it's mostly it mostly just seems to to lay there and like hmm. you know by the end of the movie I feel like wow I learned a well imparted lesson about how TV works and and what it's like to sort of you know navigate a male dominated field from a position of not only not being a, you know, a part of the white male demographic, but also coming from a place where everyone assumes that you don't deserve to be there. Right. And I think that part of it is really good. And I wonder if people at Sundance, I mean, Sundance is given to overpraising, you know, sure. Just the nature of like, we're all hiding from, you know, the cold in, probably, <laughs> yeah. we're all coming up together in these warm screening rooms. And we tend to, there tend to be a bit of a Sundance glow, but I wonder if part of the, people liked it so much because it does a good job at the sort of like thesis statement it sets out to do, but that doesn't necessarily make it a great movie. It's also not it, well, it's like, comedies, I mean, cinematography wise. It's not, uh, it's very, I, very, very bland. I'm sure it's, yeah, I, I can imagine it being pretty flat. Um, yeah. do comedies do well at Sundance or sorry, like straight comedies just uh, like, yeah, I don't know. Okay. That's a good, that's a good question. It doesn't have to be something. I don't know. Like know. this, my, that's the thing is like at a festival and with a crowd that frankly, maybe isn't that accustomed to seeing just a straightforward comedy. Yeah. Maybe this is the funniest it. thing they've seen. You know, they saw the whole festival. That's a good point. So, yeah. um, don't forget four weddings and a funeral was a Sundance movie. That's true. That's yeah. pretty funny. It's super funny. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while and I remember laughing out loud. So yeah. that's good. Um, but I tend to think of that as like a, as funny, but it's more like I'm smiling the whole time. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't laugh that much okay. at it. It's a very pleasant, pleasantly funny film. Yeah. Um, but okay. Probably top three most watched movies for me. I think, I think I've really? said that before. Okay. So I you got your die hard, die hard, four weddings and days a funeral, and confused and days and confused. Days that's an interesting, <laughs> yeah. Trifecta there. Yeah. And John Wick is probably number four by this point. Sure. (laughs) I mean, I I guess that's not counting the fact that I I should be counting like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which I watched constantly as a kid. Yeah. I mean, going by that, then yeah, like Star Wars, yeah, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that kind of thing. But it's, you know, but those, those those have dropped off. Whereas like I watched Jaws as a kid and I still watch it now. Um, gosh, aside from that, I'm trying to think what other movies I've seen, a million times. Uh, Goodfellas is up there too for me. That seems like a basic answer, but yeah, Goodfellas. And you know, there, that's the thing is I will say there were movies that I watched a bunch in like high school and college. Sure. And then I kind of, it's not like I dislike the movies, but I just burned myself out. Like I've seen, I have seen LA confidential a lot. Yeah. I have not seen it in probably eight years. I would say train spotting is like that for me that mm. I could probably quote you most of train spotting sure. right now, but yeah, it's been close to a decade since I watched it. Yeah. I saw network a lot. I saw, um, you know, a lot of movies that are in my, you know, my personal top 10 or top 20, but, uh, but it's been a while since I've seen them. All right. If I'm, my math is correct, we both have one movie left. Yes. Okay. So, uh, this is another documentary. It is called team Fox catcher. As you can imagine, it is about, uh, John story. DuPont and, uh, and it's really good. And 
I think it's, you know, there's a lot of talking heads who are, you know, reminiscing. Um, but there is something to be said for people. They're not talking to experts, you know, they're talking to the people that were actually there and have a stake and had a stake in what was going on. Um, including, you know, the, so Dave Schultz was the wrestler that was murdered by John DuPont. Um, and his children were very young. They were like mm-hmm. probably five and six. Well, they're adult, they're adults now. And so they interview them and they reflect on, you know, they add this other element, which is, you know, we, we see the sadness of Dave Schultz um, and everybody's talking about like, oh, he was such a great guy. And then you have these two people that are now adults saying like, I hear he was really great. It would have been nice to mm. actually get to know him. Um, but so those are the interviews. But then they also, you know, you're dealing with an Olympic sport and you're dealing with a very eccentric millionaire. So a lot of this was like heavily documented. So they used a lot of the original footage, uh, which I think helped a lot, especially when dealing with John DuPont, because you can see like there is something very off about this guy. Um, and so that's when it's at its most effective when it just lets the footage speak for itself. Um, but there is also a moment that, that really struck me, uh, because, uh, John DuPont was found guilty and he died in prison. Um, and Dave Schultz towards the end of the film, Dave Schultz daughter is being interviewed. And she said that, uh, she was like sitting at a coffee shop and saw someone's newspaper and it said John DuPont dead at, you know, whatever age. And she's, she's like, Oh, can I look at this? So she looked at it and then, uh, saw people commenting on TV and saying, and talking about like how happy they were that he died And because, you know, he was this, I think, honestly, not that I'm saying like, oh, poor rich people, but what I will say, which is a fun thing to say anyway, because poor rich anyway, um, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. But the the idea that like, well, plenty of plenty of people die in prison and people don't celebrate. But there's something about like this is a rich guy who who didn't escape, who did not evade justice, Mm -hmm. you know, and now he's you know, he died just like the person he murdered anyway. So. And she, and she had a really interesting perspective and one that I wasn't expecting and one that I don't think her brother has, uh, where she said, you know, everybody was celebrating that he was dead. And she's like, you know, when I, one of my earliest memories is everybody mourning my father. And she said, you know, and so I grew up learning about John DuPont and she's like, I think he was a very lonely, unloved person. And now everyone's just happy he's dead. And she's like, I felt very sad for him. Wow. And like, that's, I mean, that's yeah. astonishing in and of itself. Um, oh, good for her. Yeah. I, that's, that's tremendous, uh, forgiveness. But at the same time, she was a, she was a child. And so she didn't necessarily have the association. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so I think it could be that, but, uh, but the film is really, it's, you know, I, I liked, didn't love Foxcatcher when it came out. Um, and so honestly, when I saw that this documentary existed and it's just simply called team Foxcatcher, I just thought like, okay, this is a documentary made to capitalize on the existence of this other film. Right. Uh, but whereas, you know, when I was talking about perfect bit, I thought that it was very unambitious. I think this movie actually is fairly ambitious, or at least it tries to be as comprehensive as it can be and tracking down like all of this older footage, uh, and really trying to create, uh, 
an atmosphere of what it was like to deal with this man and, and live in this time. And so it's a really, I, I saw, I found it on Netflix and I think it's actually a very effective film. All right. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about that I saw yesterday, and this ended up being of the three bio bio docs, <laughs> bio docs uh, that I saw uh, viaduct. Um, oh boy! <laughs> I saw the one that I did not expect this to be the one that I liked the best, but I saw a movie called David Crosby. Remember my name? Okay. About David Crosby, uh, and it's really fascinating because in some in so many ways it is traditional bio doc. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got modern day interviews mixed with his sort of life story up to up to that point. Um, but I think the thing that's most interesting is that the documentary is being made right now Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I, within the past decade, I've seen Crosby, Stills and Nash in concert. They played, Mm. um, and their last, their last performance together was actually, uh, December of 2015. Uh, they played a, uh, a Christmas thing at the white house with a bunch of mm-hmm. other, uh, people. Um, and what you learn watching David Crosby remember my name is that none of them has spoken to David. The other two have not spoken to David Crosby. They speak to Graham Nash and Stephen Seals are friends with each, with each other. They don't speak to David Crosby. Neil Young also doesn't speak to David Crosby. Hmm. They, they basically made, decided to make this documentary at a time when he is, ostracized from the people, the few surviving people from the scene that he came up in. Yeah. You know? Um, and also at a time that even though he's 77 years old now, probably 76 when the shooting, I don't know. Um, and he lives very healthy. Now he lives, um, they don't say where it is in the movie, but I happen to know that he lives outside of Santa Barbara Hmm. because, uh, I know that because I go to a lot of wine tastings around there and people tend to like drop his name. Like, Oh, I've been over to David Crosby's house or David Crosby was in the other day. Or uh, I know David Crosby's wife. People like to drop David yeah. Crosby's names name. He's one of the bigger celebrities that like actually lives in, in that area, especially since Kurt Russell and Goldie Hunt sold their hotel. They used to own a hotel and bar in Los Alamos, California. Hmm. Um, and so they were the big names, but yeah. I think they sold that. So, uh, David Crosby is what we have left anyway. So, um, so he lives, he, li- he has very healthy lifestyle now for the most part. We, um, he's not entirely sober. We do see him smoke weed a little bit, but, um, uh, but he also literally could drop dead at any second. Cause he's had so much heart trouble problems mm-hmm. in his life and had multiple surgery. He has eight stents in his heart, which I guess is the maximum amount you can oh, have okay. in your heart. And so literally when he go like, when he goes at the beginning of the movie, goes off on a six week tour with his band of like younger, uh, you know, he plays with the younger crowd who don't hate him. Yeah. Um, like his, like his peers do. Um, his wife is saying goodbye to him and knowing like she could be saying goodbye to him. Like, yeah, but he's drawn to playing this music and oh, wow. he can't do, it. um, and so even this his his history and how much he's been a part of so much, you know, it's interesting. You don't think of David Crosby as one of the major figures because as he even says in the movie, he's the only member of Crosby stills Nash and young, never to have a hit as a solo artist. Um, uh, which I had to look up Stephen stills. I forgot that love the one you're with is him. I think oh, of that okay. as a Crosby stills Nash song, but that's actually a Stephen stills song. That was his hit. Um, anyway, uh, what was Graham Nash's? Uh, Graham Nash had a bunch. Okay. Um, I think, uh, yeah, not not enduring like Neil Young, but I know he had some big records. I can't think of one on the top of my head. Anyway, um, so uh, um, so yeah, even though you don't think of him as one, he was there. He was 
he says that he and Mama Cass were like, when we think of like the Laurel Canyon scene, he and Mama Cass were the first of that scene to actually move to Laurel Canyon. Hmm. And basically he just said in the sixties, the smog was so bad in Los Angeles that we wanted to live in the Hills. We want to live yeah. above the smog. That's the only reason. Um, and there's a great sort of like taking the air out of like, they go to the, and you've seen it when you drive on Laurel. There's that like, it's a convenience store, but it like, it's still called like the Canyon country store. You're oh, yeah, talking yeah. about. And so they go in there and there's like pictures of, uh, no pictures of David Cross, but even pictures of like all these Laurel Canyon <laughs> what musicians. Did this man do to everybody. But people are asking like, what was it like here in the sixties? And David Crosby was like, we didn't hang out here. We just bought, bought groceries. Here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like this is what it wasn't some big hangout. So I like that sort of, uh, taking the air out of it. Um, but also he was like, when he was in the birds, he was like friends with the Beatles. Mm. Um, they show this early, like sixties, like American TV interview with the Beatles where David Crosby is just like there because he was hanging in there. Like, uh, they're like, Oh, that's our friend, David uh, <laughs> from the birds. We hate uh, him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like he, he was there and yet so much of the movie is filtered through. Yeah. He was there and he was a monster. <laughs> he was, uh, terrible coke and heroin addict that um and also was terrible to to women he you know would you know young impressionable sort of groupies essentially he would essentially like get them hooked on heroin it's like terrible oh boy he had a terrible like he's a terrible person in so many ways but the movie is not really judging him Mm. i I think it, it was just a fascinating way to approach uh, the life of, of David Crosby. Well, and that's, you know, putting all of these things together, um, cause we've talked about six, uh, total. Um, right, yeah. it would appear that, that the best way to at least please the two of us uh-huh. is to explore, to like really explore, not praise, not like we're not, we already know that these thing these people are famous for a reason. And this is different than the Mike Wallace thing, but like, yeah. uh, like we already, we already know that they have contributed to yeah. the, to the world. Um, but yeah, now, and well now I feel like I'm, backtracking because the Mike Wallace thing, I said that like, I'm interested, I'm interested in his personal life, but I'm more interested in the larger role that he played. But I guess that's, yeah, it's different when it's like a musician as opposed to something that's, he's plugged into a larger uh, industry or, or institution. It reminds me, I used to listen to Jim Rome's sports talk radio show Mm -hmm. and he, you know, it was, was a call in show and he didn't like when callers would just, you know, say nothing unique, just say right. whatever anyone else is saying. I didn't like when they weren't good at speaking. Yeah. And so his advice, and it was, he said it at least once every episode, his advice to the callers was have a take and don't suck. And I feel like if you're going to make one of these bio docs, have a take yeah. and don't suck. Yeah. And I guess that's, yeah. And the take of, Boy, David Crosby sure was great, right? <laughs> Although, right. Uh, you know what? At this point, maybe that's the take. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> it's definitely uh, against what everyone else is saying. 